Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Here's a joke. How do you find Will Smith in the snow? I don't know how. Look for fresh prints. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download, an hour of food, culture, and humor to fuel your party conversation. You just got a joke from True Blood star Joe Manganiello yeah. that'll help break the ice. He's among the stars of the movie Magic Mike XXL. It's out now on DVD. Later in the show, he'll answer your etiquette questions with wisdom like this. Keep it above the nipples. Garrison Keillor gave us that same advice. It's unforgettable. Plus, artist and musician Devendra Banhart stops by and talks about mysticism and honey. Also coming up, documentary director Liz Garbus tells us what happened to singer Nina Simone. And if all that sounds familiar, that's because this is an encore broadcast of an episode we first aired in June. So cast your mind back to a time when cranberry sauce was but a distant dream. And when, as at any party, we started with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. From the U.S. Supreme Court, the subsidies for Obamacare have been upheld. The Confederate battle flag is on the defensive. Men's professional golf has a new superstar. He's American Jordan Spieth. Now for something you might not have heard, we are joined by Richard Lawson. He is a columnist and movie reviewer for Vanity Fair. Richard What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about the rediscovery of what is being called the greatest cinematic pie fight of all time. Okay. Is that a high bar? Well, I mean, <laughs> we've all seen someone getting hit in the face with a pie in like old timey, yes. you know, Keystone. I don't know if cups. I've seen it, but yeah, it just lives in my memory. Or yeah, you've probably cliche. seen like uh, like homages to it, maybe yes. not the originals. Um, but it was a really popular thing in like the early 1900s, and then it sort of fell out of favor. But in 1927, um, Laurel and Hardy made a movie called The Battle of the Century. Mm-hmm. That the centerpiece, this sort of big moment in the in the film, is a pie fight that involves 3,000 pies being thrown into people's faces. Why does that sound so awesome? Well, it sounds amazing. I mean, so apparently they bought the entire day's worth of output from the Los Angeles Pie Company. (laughs) Of course. That's the power of old Hollywood. Well, yeah, I mean, in 1927, that's absolutely something that they had. Um, And so then they just threw them in people's faces, and it was long held to be like this amazing pie fight scene, but it disappeared. So if this is the greatest pie fight in history, how did it disappear? It just kind of got lost to history and sort of reels, you know, were thrown out. But then it was rediscovered in the archives of this film, private film collector. He didn't know he had it mm. because everyone assumed it was gone. Mm-hmm. But someone was sifting through all this stuff after he died and they said, oh my God, this is the... The Citizen Kane of pie fights. Yeah. So does this mean that we're going to see a pie fight renaissance in modern comedy? I hope so. Apparently in 1927, this did spark something of a pie renaissance. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so maybe we're due. I'm sure Judd Apatow is on it. Uh, Richard Lawson, thank you so much for the small talk. Thank you. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our tart, refreshing history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week back in 1846, an instrument was patented that came to define jazz music. Eventually, Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Like a great jazz solo, the history of the saxophone goes all over the map. It starts in 19th century France, when a Parisian instrument maker named Adolphe Sax got an idea for a super instrument. It'd have the powerful volume of a brass horn, but you'd be able to play it fast and nimbly like a woodwind. Soon, he'd worked up a prototype, a kind of mutant offspring of a clarinet and a French horn. 
Sachs dreamed of classical orchestras adopting his invention, but they generally found the sax sound too, quote, imprecise. Instead, saxes made their first big splash in French military bands, where their loudness was much appreciated. Later, musicians on the vaudeville circuit took a shine to the instrument, because among other things, you could make it sound pretty silly. It was until the 20s that New Orleans musician Sidney Bechet made the sax a jazz standard. A clarinetist, he was sick of his instrument getting drowned out by louder cornets in ensembles. So when he came across a soprano sax while on tour in London, he knew he'd found his weapon. Bechet's soulful sax sound caught audiences' imaginations. Big bands started making room for show-stopping sax solos. And by the time bebop jazz rolled around, sax players were frontmen, making sounds the instrument's inventor never imagined. John Coltrane once described his own style as, quote, starting in the middle of a sentence and moving in both directions at once. So that was the history, now for the drink to serve with it. I'm on the line with Mike Miles. He is owner of the restaurant and bar Miles Lab in Elkhart, Indiana, where a company called Con Instruments was the first in America to make saxophones in the 1880s. It's still home to a bunch of instrument manufacturers. And actually, I understand you just had a jazz fest there in Elkhart last weekend, Mike? Yes, that's correct. The 28th annual jazz fest here, all volunteer supported. They do it every Father's Day weekend in in June. All right. So Elkhart is a hotbed of musicality. (laughs) Uh, So this was probably a pretty easy task for you. Tell us what drink that history inspired. Well, we came up with the uh, Brass Bell. The drink is going to be in a martini form. So the shape of the glass would look significantly like the the bell part of the saxophone horn. Oh, yeah. Kind of uh, opens up to a wide mouth. Yes. All right. So what do you put into this bell-like martini glass? Uh, We are using uh, a French cognac to, you know, harken back to the the French aspect of jazz. Of course, the French origins of the instrument. And then uh, citrus vodka. Why that? Uh, Well, our restaurant is homage to my family who started a company called Miles Lab in Elkhart, and they were the number two producer of citric acid in the world for many, many years. So, wow, that is a huge stretch for that ingredient, but yeah, I really yeah. appreciate the effort. <laughs> uh, and the flavor's good. <laughs> that helps. And then uh, we use uh, bar syrup or simple syrup and then uh, fresh-squeezed orange juice here. So uh, the color is kind of that brassy color of the saxophone and put it in a martini glass and looks like the saxophone. That sounds fantastic. I was thinking, though, it should have maybe like a a swizzle stick straw so that you could blow into it, right? Right, sure. What we really need is a a reed-like straw. Sure, just, oh man, if you could manufacture swizzle stick straws with a reed on it that you could play them like an instrument, I think you'd be a millionaire. So, Brendan, in addition to being the capital of brass band instrument making, Mm -hmm. Elkhart, Indiana, is also world famous for making brass firefighting equipment. All right. I love that. And actually, if you think about it, a saxophone has that upturned bowl part, which makes sense for bringing water to fires. So that's actually a great instrument for putting out fires. It really is a super instrument. That's right. Uh, People, you'll find all our cocktail recipes on our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. 
All right, we've had a drink, learned some music history. Now this party needs a music playlist. And here with that is Joy Williams. As half the critically acclaimed indie folk duo The Civil Wars, she won four Grammy Awards. She's also released several solo albums. Her latest is called Venus. Here she is with song suggestions. Hey, my name is Joy Williams, and here is my dinner party soundtrack. It's fun to be asked to create a playlist because this is what I do on a really regular basis. My friends back in Nashville, we have a dinner party called The Night Circus, and uh, we get together and swap food and music. And um, music, much like food, is better when shared. So the first song that normally gets started during appetizers is Guilty by Al Boley. Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do? If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty for loving you. <laughs> he was from Mozambique and ended up becoming really famous in England and then over in the States for being a jazz crooner and band leader in the 1930s. What can I do? What can I say? After I've taken the blame. Al has this way of crooning, this high tenor that lilts and floats, and he always sang with so much freedom and joy. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, loving you dear like I do. It blends in well, you can mingle and talk, it doesn't interrupt you while you're having a conversation with a friend. And for whatever reason, it's a very warm and welcoming sound, hearing music that could have been played on a very, very old record player. On a gramophone, even. This is like the biggest jump that could happen. But if you come to the Night Circus dinner, we start in the 1930s, but we almost always wind up in the 1980s. Cars by Gary Newman is a famous favorite of the night circus and there's normally people out of their chairs either air drumming or air keyboarding because life is too short to take yourself too seriously. Rack of lamb we make a lot. We do a lot of filet mignon. I think for me having comfort food is much like listening to something from the 80s that you've heard a hundred times before. It can be a comfort too. So the third track is by a band from Berlin called The Acid. And they have a song called Animal. What I love about Animal is that there is so much sparseness to it. There is like a beautiful hit on a drum that is just so perfectly timed. And these almost ghost-like vocals that are happening, it's almost what's not there. Like in art, you know, the negative space gives you the space to feel what it is that you need to feel. I need to love. There's something about kind of getting a little bit quieter again, lingering and not rushing anything. It's almost like what happens at the end of our dinners where we're there so long that the candles start dripping wax on the tablecloth. (laughs) 
I couldn't say that I would press play on a song of mine during a dinner party, but maybe my song Woman Oh Mama could be that song that makes its way into a post-dessert dance party. I wrote it in Venice Beach, and there's drum circles that just happen for hours. I think that maybe that sort of like subconsciously seeped, you know, into my writing process that day of uh, of wanting to make something that that felt like it could move your body. Dinner Party soundtrack, courtesy of Joy Williams. Her latest album is called Venus. All right, we're going to take a break, but coming up, artist and musician Devendra Banhart and I start a disco band when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. We should let you know this is an encore broadcast of a show we first aired in June. It's a great one. Later, Magic Mike star Joe Manganiello answers your etiquette questions, and filmmaker Liz Garbus tells us the story of Nina Simone. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right, and it's Devendra Banhart. His alternately gentle and psychedelic pop music has garnered him a cult-like following. He's collaborated with the likes of Beck and Anthony and the Johnsons. But meanwhile, he's pursued a parallel career as a fine artist. That's right. He is shown at SF MoMA and MoCA Los Angeles. And his latest project is an art book called I Left My Noodle on Ramen Street. Of course. When we spoke in June, I mentioned the book's introduction, in which curator Jeffrey Deitch says Banhart's early musical tastes were formed by watching skateboard videos. So I asked if skateboard graphics had an impact on his visual art. I think the graphics from a lot of those Powell skateboards were totally mystical to me. I mean, maybe the first time I... uh, See, that's the thing. I grew up reading, like, Hindu comic books. (laughs) I have these Eastern-influenced parents. Okay. And so I've got these comic books of um, the story of Ganesh and and Shiva and um, the illustrated Bhagavad Gavita. And I remember the first time I saw some skater had this giant regal elephant on their deck. And I immediately recognized that as Ganesh. I'm like, oh, wow, that's the, cool. The, I s- the Hindu elephant god. Yeah. And I think that uh, you feel connected to it because you already know it, you recognize it, and then you just want to know more about it, I guess. But when did I feel like I want to be an artist? Actually, that happened in LACMA. The Los Angeles County Museum of Art? Yeah. They were showing Robert Frank's film called Pull My Daisy. And that changed my life. I, 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 my mom thought I was high when, when she picked me up. Literally? Literally. She's like, what are you on? Because I was, it's something about it. How it old were you? About it. I, I mean, it must have been you know, 15. Can you describe it for those who haven't seen it? It's narrated by Jack Kerouac and I think written by him. And um, Allen Ginsberg's in it and a couple other of the beat yeah. poets. It's shot in black and white. It's in New York. It tells a little bit of the story of this kind of family having a party and there's a little kid that comes in and out and Jack is kind of narrating. He starts talking about, maybe it was the line like, one of the guys kind of getting drunk and uh, drinking beer and talking to a priest and he's like, is cockroach holy? Is grilled cheese holy? 
Something mm-hmm. about that. I, mean, I, I remember that always stayed with me. It's interesting that the two examples you've given so far, the, the Ganesh God skateboard and the uh, movie, and specifically a line about holiness, both of these seem concerned with the idea of mysticism. And that's a word that's been ascribed to your art a lot. And I wonder if, can we talk about, there's a series of drawings at the beginning of your book that really seem to speak to this. Yeah. They use this recurring motif of two little hands. It's a little delicate little drawing of two hands cupped and held closely together. The palms are towards each other. And you make patterns out of dozens of these little cupped hands. You have a drawing of human figures who have a pair of these hands where their heads should be. And to me, that evokes prayer or something. What feeling do you get from that? Yeah, I think prayer was part of where that was coming from. I think some of that repetition is almost proof of love in a way. I'm proving to you how much I, let's say care. So this is how much I care about this. I'm going to repeat it this many times. And the symbol itself is such an archetype. It's almost like a, some cheesy fridge magnet, but it's something like, something like in order to receive something, one must let go of something. You know, release what's in your hand in order to receive something. And so the oh. hand becomes the symbol of, of, of giving and receiving, and it's also a symbol, of course, of prayer. And yeah. the repetition is um, why my art is a lot closer to the kind of music that I'd like to make. I, I don't. I make pop music. Even if I don't want to write pop music, it somehow turns into what I think of as a pop song. But the, my art is closer to the kind of music I'd like to compose. Wait, meaning? This repetitive, minimal, I'd like if I could just repeat one note over and over again. See, my work, my music doesn't have the space that I'd like it to have. And why, I can find why don't that, you just... Well, I don't know. It's a good question. That's why I keep making music, because I haven't even gotten close to, to, to the mark. It seems like if, if what you're going for is repetition in space, uh, there are plenty of examples to, to begin with, the, some of the work of Brian Eno. And... Well, yeah. To me, somebody who makes the most useful music, the most useful music, uh, is Harold Budd. And, and he's a master of space. What do you mean by useful? Like, how, uh, how useful how? Oh, I mean that it's the only thing, one of the few things at least, that I can just have playing throughout the entire day and I just have the feeling that it's really augmenting being alive because it's keeping me very, very present. I'm not just wandering off into the reverie that the song itself is kind of creating, which I can do if I focus on the song, and I'm not forgetting that the music is playing either. So it really does serve as a meditative tool and meditation obviously being being present. All right, well, we have two questions we ask everyone on the show which I would like you to meditate upon. Uh, The first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? Well, I dislike talking so much. Really? That doesn't, it doesn't feel like that to me. Well, because you're doing your, you know, Reiki juju on me. So you're, you're really like pulling teeth. But if we could sit in silence, that'd be really great. So the minute that they start talking, it's like, why'd I come to this party? So basically anything that anyone says to you is is wrong. I I want no one to talk to me. (laughs) Do you know why? Actually, no, but I'm going to tell you something. I've had many people say to me, one of the saddest things that I can imagine, I saw somebody eating alone. Oh God, that's like the saddest thing. That's crazy to me. You're not eating alone. You're eating with your food. I mean, there's this great quote, actually. It's a Buddhist quote, which is, when I go to eat, you know, my food is there for me. I should be there for it. And it's like, how fun. 
You go eat. <laughs> I don't have someone talking to me, distracting me from this experience of eating my food. So I'd rather go to a dinner party alone together. That's like kind of my ideal dinner party. All right. Well, let me wrap up this conversation very quickly then for you. <laughs> Our second question is, tell us something we don't know. And this can be anything about yourself or you know, something you've learned about the world. I learned that, you know, honey doesn't spoil. Oh, um, ever? Ever. It's the one thing, actually, it doesn't go bad. That's really um, good to know, actually, because I have seriously, I think, five jars of honey in various states of what looks like decay. Oh, no. It'll crystallize, but that's it. Honey in a tomb, in, in a pharaoh's tomb, you can still eat that. Oh, man. Um, I learned I would that. love... Somebody's going to put that on a menu, by the right? way. Right? Honey <laughs> from... Pharaoh's honey. Pharaoh's honey. There you go. Exactly. A single dollop, four million dollars. Um, could we start, like, a disco band called Pharaoh's Honey? Because that's, that's a pretty good name, too. Yes. Oof, that's good. <laughs> uh, so that's another thing I learned, is that you and I are starting a disco band Great. called Pharaoh's Honey. I can't wait. We're going to be playing at... Uh, so the Kumbh Mela, that's the biggest religious festival on the planet. It's every 12 that's years. Right. So we've got 12 years. I don't know when the next one is, actually. <laughs> we're playing the Kumbh Mela with Pharaoh's we're Honey. Playing, we're headlining the Kumbh Mela. Devendra Banhart, his latest art book is called I Left My Noodle on Ramen Street. Mm-hmm. And Brendan, this isn't Pharaoh Honey we're hearing. Yeah. This is just a solo Banhart tune. Okay. Because he, he and I are still working out our sound. You know, sure. we're, we're fielding offers from a lot of labels. Sure. And that explains it, your bell bottoms. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, folks, you can hear some non-imaginary music from Devendra's hero, Harold Butt. It's at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Time to eavesdrop. Writer Rebecca Mackay's short fiction appeared in the Best American Short Stories anthology for four consecutive years. This week she released her first story collection. It's called Music for Wartime. Today we overhear an excerpt. Hi, I'm Rebecca Mackay, and I'm going to be reading to you from the story called Couple of Lovers on a Red Background. It's one of the more surreal stories in the book, and it's about an unconventional romance. I've been calling him Bach so far, at least in my head. But now that he's started wearing my ex-husband's clothes and learned to work the coffee maker, I feel it's time to call him Johan. I said it out loud once when I needed to get him off the couch before the super came up, but I'm not sure I pronounced it right, Germanic enough, because he didn't respond. Though I'm not sure I'd recognize my name either in the midst of someone screaming a foreign language. He got off the couch and went to the vacuum closet only because I practically carried him. No easy task, pushing someone so big and sweaty, even with the weight he's lost since he got here. I'd take him out for some real German food, but if there's one thing I've learned from the movies about caring for transplanted historical people, it's never to take them out in public, among the taxis and police and department store mannequins. I've kept the curtains closed and the TV unplugged, but I did introduce him to the stereo so he'd have something to do every day while I'm gone. I'm proud of how carefully I did it. I dug my angel music box out of the Christmas decorations and played it for him. He seemed familiar with the concept, so I pointed back and forth between the angel box and the CD player, 
He was pleased, not at all scared. And now he's pushing buttons and changing discs like he was raised on Sony. He's fond of Mozart, unsurprisingly. But for some reason, Tchaikovsky makes him giggle. When I played him Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, I thought he was going to wet the couch. Five minutes later, he went to the piano and played the main part from memory, busted out laughing at certain phrases. If such a thing is possible, he played it sarcastically. He has a laugh, incidentally, like you'd expect from a pot-smoking 13-year-old. On the phone the other day, my mother said, who's that laughing over there? At least she thinks I'm dating again. I decided I should look respectable in the presence of a genius, so I started freshening my face every day in the cab on the way home. I tidied the apartment, too. I cleaned out the freezer, all those Ziplocs of Larry's chili, and I finally filled in the missing light bulbs above the bathroom sink. I introduced Johan to soap and deodorant, and the other day, while I was gone, he finally changed his clothes. Now he's wearing Larry's gray flannel shirt and old corduroys. He looks so normal. Sometimes I glance up from my magazine and forget it's not just Larry sitting there drinking his beer. He's not bad-looking. Technically, he's a married man, but even more technically, his second wife died 300 years ago. Then there's this. He had 20 children. He's clearly very fertile, and any child of his would be a musical genius. His sons certainly were, and his daughters might have been, given the chance. Could that be the reason this happened, so I can have his daughter and give her a decent shot at life? The question, then, is how to seduce an 18th century German. Rebecca Mackay with an excerpt from her story Couple of Lovers on a Red Background. It appears in her new collection Music for Wartime, and you're listening to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. And now the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. So, Rico, have you ever liked a dog so much that you wanted to take it out to dinner? Well, as you know, I'm a cat guy. So, oh yeah, that's yeah, right. You know. Notoriously lousy dinner companions. They don't. They always use the wrong fork. That's right. Well, a lot of <laughs> dog owners do want to take their pets out to restaurants, which you can do in California. I should note. That's true, but not in New York yet. Just last week, the state legislature passed a bill that, if signed into law, would allow dogs to hang out with their owners in eateries. Mm -hmm. So, to discuss the pros and cons of dining canines, I invited Greg Morabito, New York editor of food website Eater, to join me at a Brooklyn restaurant that would be affected by the law. There are a lot of rules related to dining and a lot of reasons why restaurateurs can get fined. And I guess this is one of the ways that they could get, you know, fined and it could potentially hurt restaurateurs. So I think this is like actually kind of helping them out a little bit and making it just a little bit more lenient. They have so much pressure on them. There are so many rules, it's like almost impossible to keep track of them. Um, and even some of them are so arcane and outdated, they just don't make any sense anymore. So I think this is like actually you know, a play to kind of help them out. All right, well, that's one reason they're getting rid of the dog ban. Why was the dog ban in effect in the first place? Well, I think it's a sanitation issue that you're not really supposed to have animals around where you're serving food. I mean, you still will never be able to bring a dog inside where they're serving food unless it's a service dog. So 
I'm assuming they kind of made it open and lax, this rule, because if you're sitting outside at a cafe, a dog might just walk by you, and that is basically the same thing as having a dog right next to you. Restaurants are not preparing food outside, usually. I think that the rule existed in the first place, because if you're going into a restaurant, it's closer to the kitchen, it's closer to where they're preparing the food or making the drinks, dander or whatever germs or dog bacteria could get on the inside of the restaurants. Yeah, but there's a difference between someone walking by and smoking a cigarette than someone sitting next to you and smoking a cigarette. And as someone who has allergies, I'm telling you, having a dog immediately next to you will induce sneezing as opposed to just having a dog walk by. So there's a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I believe that as part of this new bill, if it's passed, restaurateurs will get to choose, A, whether they actually want to allow dogs outside, B, if they want to allow them in certain areas, basically what rules they want to set up. And so I'm sure that, like, smart business owners, if they have this dog rule, will say, okay, well, there's a corner here because some people don't want to be around dogs when they're eating. I'm actually one of those people. And that's because uh, I get kind of nervous when I'm around dogs, especially like small ones. You have to kind of pay attention to them. They're moving around all the time and they're really fragile. Beyond the sanitation aspect, having animals on leashes, like bopping around, sniffing food, possibly fighting amongst themselves can create a really unpleasant atmosphere. Dogs also take up a lot of space. You know, they're unpredictable. It's like that kind of thing. If you're taking a jog down the street and somebody has a dog on a leash, they're taking up maybe six more feet of space, you know, and you have to constantly be aware of them. You don't want to hurt them. Um, So that's, you know, that's one potential sort of downfall that I see in my eyes as a diner is that I don't constantly want to have to be aware of everybody's dogs. I mean, it's, it's, it's different with kids, you know what I mean? Because that's another human being, and the parents are really careful about that. But sometimes dog owners just let them do whatever they want, you know? So your website wrote a piece about cat owners who are complaining that the law is unfair because it discriminates against cats. Only dogs are now allowed. I think it is unfair to discriminate cats. But the thing is that very few people take their cats outside of their apartments or their houses. I mean, sometimes you do see cats on leashes. Like, I know there's one guy in my neighborhood that walks his cat every day. I think that maybe they excluded cats just because, you know, it was an extra bit of legislation and some extra language that might have kind of junked up the bill and maybe made it a little bit harder for them to push it through. I want to point out one other part of this bill. Part of it forbids, quote, communal pet drinking bowls, which means that if a dog wants water, a restaurant will have to provide it its own bowl. And that was put in there to prevent, I'm guessing, chaos between dogs, splashing, etc., which says to me, the people who support this bill know in their hearts that this is going to be messy. These are, you're bringing animals to an eating establishment. Yeah, see, I would think that a lot of restaurateurs from an operation standpoint, because of that specific bit of business that they have to have the individual dishes, I think a lot of them would just say, you know what, it's not worth it. It's going to be, it's going to be too much extra work. Like, are we really going to see a bump? Are our customers really going to love our restaurant that much more if we allow that? You're thinking the market is going to take care of this one way or the other. Yeah, I think so, definitely. And, you know, it, I, was, I was thinking about someone who's not asthmatic. You know, what would be the scenario in which I would be totally, you know, chill and cool to have dogs around? And I think that maybe a good rule might be only during brunch, because brunch is like chaos anyway. It's just like a free-for-all where people do whatever they want. Some people, you know, eat a nice meal. Some people get wasted, and, you know, on mimosas. Some people just sit with an empty cup and talk to their friends for hours, you know. So I think dogs could maybe fit into that milieu very easily. I'm anti-brunch for many of the reasons you mentioned. It's like a free-for-all. It's bedlam. People drinking too much, spending too much money, fighting in line. So maybe let's leave that to the dogs. 
Enrico, we aired that piece in June. Of course. Since then, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo signed the bill. Uh Uh-huh. So restaurants can now allow patrons to bring their dogs to certain outdoor dining areas. All right. So change is afoot. Or a paw, as they say. I'm appalled at that. (laughs) (laughs) People... Let's cleanse our palates for a moment. When we mm. return, we will look back at the talented, troubled Nina Simone, plus actor Joe Manganello talks about superfluous articles of clothing. When the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Coming up, we speak with Liz Garbus, director of a new documentary about the music and travails of the great Nina Simone. For Nina Simone, it was sanity, it was family, it was the commercial side of her career. She paid a huge price. That's in just a few minutes, but first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is Joe Manganello. He is probably best known as the werewolf. Is it Alcid? Alcid, yeah. Alcid. Not El Cid. No. That's, Which is, <laughs> that's a great bar in L.A. Yeah. He is not a bar. He's a werewolf. And the smash HBO series <laughs> True Blood. And, of course, he also plays Richie, one of the tribe of male strippers whose lives were portrayed with surprising sweetness and intelligence in the hit film Magic Mike. That movie wound up on a bunch of critics' top ten lists. Joe reprises the role in the new sequel, Magic Mike XXL. Joe, it is a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Great to be here. So a lot's been made about the obvious beefcake appeal of these movies. But as I said, they're very smart. They portray this very warm friendship between the guys in this troupe of strippers. I will say this one is a lot lighter in tone. Tell us a little bit about the the process behind making that decision. The first movie was had to service this love story and have an indie feel to it because yeah. I think when you're when you're the first male stripper movie <laughs> that I think Tell there us. is a, a bit of that you have to take the critics in, in the, into play I think you know once it came out everybody enjoyed it we looked at each other and said let's do another one but have this one be about the guys mm-hmm. and let's take the chains off and and get wild and make the movie that I think people really wanted to see or expected to see oh, the first really? time around this is like the dam breaking it's like let's get these shirts off uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say that, but I think that the idea of male stripping is inherently funny. And I think where the first one gave all of the reasons why why someone would want to leave that lifestyle. It was almost yes. like, a, like a Saturday night fever. Like you're the king of this world, but outside of that bubble, you're nothing. The second movie gives all of the reasons you would never want to leave that lifestyle. Well, so after the first film, Magic Mike, you decided to make a documentary about male strippers. What? most surprised you about that world when you actually took a close look at it? How damn likable these guys were. Most of them came from really great families. Uh, Bible Belt took place in Dallas, Texas. So, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, God-fearing, like really, you know, sweet, nice people and good guys um, who were former athletes who were struggling at jobs that didn't pay a lot of money. And someone would say to them, hey, you're in great shape and you're athletic and you could make more money doing this. And they're 23, 24, 25 years old. And yeah, I mean, this is the greatest job I could ever imagine having. <laughs> oh yeah. my God. It's like being a rock star. You get to train like a professional athlete. And, uh, you know, one of the guys 
in fact, was a 55-year-old male stripper named Randy the Master Blaster, <laughs> who had been stripping consecutively since 1979. Damn. Wow. Uh, and he loved it. And has made uh, he's, he now mentors and tutors and coaches the other guys, much like McConaughey's character did in, in the, first in the yeah, original right. Magic Mike. Yeah. So it was a fascinating one. And he lives with his mom who was 78 years old, who answered the phones from 10 to 6 for their stripper-gram company, <laughs> oh who just loves them to death, you know, and wow. is his nutritionist. So it's it's not what you think. Yeah. yeah. I guess so Brent... Rico and I still have a chance. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> I think we're out of the business after this interview. Because we are, you can acknowledge this, Joe, we're ridiculously cut yeah. specimens. You're one of us. Ripped. Yeah. Maybe it's a good moment to uh, turn to our etiquette questions. Yeah. All right, at least. First yeah. question comes from Chris in Williamsburg, Virginia. Chris's question is, how many buttons at the top of a button-up shirt should one be allowed to unbutton at a dinner party? Oh, there boy. Go. Um, I think anything that keeps you out of Miami Vice territory. I see. <laughs> I think. But, but what does that entail? Is that like a couple of inches of chest? Or? Didn't he wear T-shirts? I think you could. Yeah, that's actually true. Uh, well, then Cuban drug lord. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> I think you could go top button, next button down, past that. You, I mean, what am I doing right now? I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I think you're safe with the two. If you get into okay. the third, I think it's about button placement because not all shirts are the mm-hmm. same. So you can't, I think that that gets into the judgment call. So yeah, two you, is like. Use the nipples as a guideline. You want to be above them. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Keep it above the nipples. Yeah. That I think okay. we can all agree on. All right. And here's something from Tim in Phoenix, Arizona. Tim writes When a friend works nights, Say he's a fireman or a performer or a vampire, etc. Is it all right to throw a breakfast bash for his birthday? More generally, what is the best way to celebrate with someone who is asleep when most of us are awake? Mm. And you did shoot a lot at night, right? In oh, True Blood, and you have no idea. I mean, I remember falling asleep at a red light and oh, uh, driving home from Seriously? from from Malibu. You were okay, apparently. Yeah, but it was scary when you come to and you oh, you know, you're in a car and your foot is depressed on on the brake pedal. Oh my god! Uh, so I would say maybe send a car service to bring that kind of No, I, <laughs> that does sound like a good idea, actually. Uh, no, but I'm all for mixing it up. I mean, heck, I was a big fan of the breakfast date. You don't have to go to dinner; you can go to breakfast. So I just think it's don't keep that person up. If they want to yeah. go to sleep, I would wait for the day off, to be honest with but, you. But, okay. yeah, I was going to say, wouldn't you wait for the day off? Because yeah. doesn't it sound wrong to your ears, a breakfast bash? I mean, it's like, how wild can we get here, guys? Yeah, you can get pretty gotta... pretty wild at breakfast time. <laughs> We're talking All right. to a guy in You're true blood. You're talking yeah. hot sauce on the eggs florentine. <laughs> Is right. that a euphemism? Or is that... <laughs> do what you got to do. <laughs> uh, here's something from Not Gonna Tell You What It Is, Sorry Not Even For Joe in Chicago. This Whoa. guy is not going right. to tell you what his name is. He says, oh, I see why. I've been given a nickname that I'm not a fan of, and it has taken root. How do I kill that one? Or maybe better, how do I get myself a new one? Hmm. I don't know why he's asking Joe, which is a pretty straightforward nickname. Well, I think he has a pretty interesting nickname in the movie. Oh, well, that's true. we can't talk about that. Is that what it, oh, I can't talk <laughs> right. about that on the air? Well, you... I noticed you called me Richie. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, well, we can bleep it. Your name is Big <laughs> Richie yes. in the movie. Or in the Latin market, Ricardo Grande. <laughs> Um, <laughs> See, it seems so much more elegant right. that way. But the point is, what, do we have any advice for uh, we're not going to tell you what it is? Well, I think time. I think you just, you know, for years, wherever I went, it was uh, Wolfman or oh, really? uh, Le Lugaru or El Hombre Lobo, whatever all the wolf stuff was. And now I'm Big <laughs> Richie. So uh, all that <laughs> werewolf <I> earned... <laughs> stuff c- c- goes away. So I would say get out there. <laughs> 
Get on your horse <laughs> and uh, do something uh, yeah. worthy of a better. Just nickname, do two man. major motion pictures and, and get it uh, done. Yeah, my mom. My mom has a T-shirt that says "Big Richie's Mom" <laughs> that she wears to Starbucks in Pittsburgh. So when when you're in trouble, does your mom call you by your full nickname? Like Big Richard, get in <laughs> yeah. here. Yeah, exactly. Did you leave these toys on the floor? Well, there you go. You just gotta you gotta work harder, Chicago. Um, all right, another question. This one comes from yeah. Patrick in Santa Monica. Oh my God. Patrick writes, "You wear these often in the movies." Is there a more PC term for a, quote, wife beater shirt? Mm. Please say yes. That term grosses me out. Well, actually, technically, they're called A shirts. That's right. Ah, there it is. I only realized that after I finally went and and got some. I never really wore them because I'm a shrimp. I finally (laughs) got some, and it was like A shirts. What the hell are those? Guys, I never understood. The only reason I wear a T-shirt is to absorb sweat, not to be gross here, and an Mm. A shirt doesn't work. There's no cotton in the critical part of your body where you sweat. So what is the role of the A-shirt? You're absolutely right. It does fall into the category of useless articles of clothing. Much like, you know, I found out that essential to a male stripper's wardrobe is the sleeveless hoodie. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Like, to keep you warm with the hood on it, but you don't have sleeves to keep your arms warm. Yeah, it keeps your arms icy cool. So what is that all about? I think that's so you can cover your head when your mom's wearing her big Richie t-shirt next to you. (laughs) There you go. Form follows function. Joe Manganiello, thank you so much for being here today and telling our audience how to behave, I think. Yeah, there's your etiquette tips for the day. Joe Manganiello, his movie Magic Mike XXL is out now on DVD. And if after watching it, you need further advice about what item of clothing you shouldn't wear and how to politely rip them off your body, just Hmm. send us an email via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And please don't ask for photos of us working out. Yeah. Because the sight of our over-pumped, rippling six-packs we found Mm -hmm. just makes people feel super bad about their own bodies. Nina Simone, the singer known as the High Priestess of Soul, is the subject of a new documentary released this week on Netflix called What Happened, Miss Simone? That's right. And this week, I had a chance to talk with its director, Liz Garbus. We should note part of our conversation was about a Simone song that used strong language to condemn racist violence. Given the context, we thought it was important not to censor that language. Sensitive listeners be warned. But I started by asking her to tell me about the singer's life before she was Nina Simone. Nina Simone was born Eunice Wayman in Tryon, North Carolina. She was a prodigy. She was a classical pianist. Mm. And she was growing up in the Jim Crow South, but she was embraced by the white community who decided to take up a collection and, and pay for her classical music education. This got her all the way through to a year at Juilliard here in New York City. Yeah. Then the money ran out, and Eunice Wayman had to support her family who had moved to be near her. So she started playing in bars to make a living. Down in Atlantic City, right? In Atlantic like City. Yeah. But her parents were church people, and the idea of their classical pianist daughter playing in bars was not something that would have sat well for them. Mm. Eunice Wayman changed her name to Nina Simone. She became incredibly popular uh, because of her interpretations of standard songs. You've talked to so many people for this movie. What, how would you describe her gift? Well, there are so many things. You know, the way that she would reinvent these standards. Yeah. Um, and she didn't fuse classical into jazz and blues and, you know, kind of create something anew from something you thought you knew so well. I mean, yeah. that was really magical. 
Her big hit was Porgy that put her on the charts. Um, And her interpretations of songs had such deep emotion that there was something very cathartic about them for the listeners. And I think you felt kind of understood. Mm. You felt that she, you know, if you were down or wherever you were, she'd been there. I love you, Porgy. Don't let him handle me and drive me mad. If you can keep me, I want to stay with you forever and I'll be glad. Yes, I love you, Pokey. She makes it. She becomes very popular nationwide. And then she meets her husband, mm. who became her manager. Um, Never a good idea. Yeah, well, t- yes, as we know from music <laughs> history. Uh, yes. We're laughing, but it's actually a sad story. Tell us about him and, and their relationship. Andy Strad was the long, significant relationship in her life. He was a New York City police officer, met her at a club, and there was an immediate attraction. He gave her the, you know, she gave him her number, and it was on. Um, or actually, as he says, he was eating a hamburger plate, and she dipped into the fries, and then it was on. <laughs> So this was a very charged relationship. And Andy, when he saw Nina, he decided to leave his career and begin to manage her. It seems he was quite a brilliant manager. Um, He got the business very, very quickly. But, you know, as his daughter would say, and, uh, you know, Nina will says in the film, he was also a bully. And there was domestic violence that spilled over into the daughter's life and yeah. in all over Nina's life. And it's documented in her journals and diaries and in some of the private tapes we found of Nina Simone. Her journals also show her increasingly enfeebled mental state in the early 60s. There's the abuse, exhaustion from working too much, but also signs of mental illness. How do you make sense of all of that emotional turmoil? Yeah, you can't separate them. I mean, all of them, you know, I've had people ask me, like, what came first, the abuse or the mental illness, the mental illness or the, you know, how does the activism fill in the drug, you know, and and you can't separate any of them. I mean, here it was a time where, I mean, I think now if we looked at Nina Simone, you know, probably a layperson might say, that sounds like bipolar disorder. You know, she's massively depressed and then goes through manic moments and, you know, has a has a tremendous sex drive. I mean, yeah. she would describe having sex attacks. Yeah. Um, and those are all classic bipolar symptoms. But then, you know, of course, that terminology didn't exist. So here was a woman, you know, sort of struggling with these enormous mood swings in a relationship that was violent. I mean, you see in her diaries, she talks about hating herself. Mm-hmm. Perhaps her staying in that relationship was a form of self-hatred. And then, of course, there's the rage of the times. And all of these things are commingling, and and you can't separate them. So at some point, she attaches that rage to the civil rights movement. Her friendship with Lorraine Hainsbury, the woman who wrote uh, Raisin in the Sun, a social activist and playwright, made her more politically aware. And then, after the bombings in Birmingham that led to the Birmingham riots, she sits down and writes Mississippi Goddamn, this song that is political, it's angry, it's direct, and it launches a whole new phase in her life and her career. That's right. I mean, Mississippi Goddamn was an absolutely pivotal uh, song, a moment in Nina Simone's career. She said when she grew up, nobody talked about race. 
you all knew it, but you didn't talk about it. And uh, I think in the Birmingham church bombing, it just poured out of her. I mean, that's what she said. She said she wrote the song in 15 minutes. And it expressed the rage of a lifetime um, of existing in Jim Crow South. And um, of also the community of intellectuals that she was around who were, you know, awakening her to radical thinking of the time. You know, she was Lorraine Hansberry. It was, it was James Baldwin. It was Stokely Carmichael, Miriam McCabe. You know, everything changed. It would never be a simple career for Nina Simone. The name of this tune is Mississippi Goddamn. And I mean every word of it. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest. And everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn. So her anger and intensity found a worthy target, and it did bring her some sense of peace. She says something like, I was finally singing for my people, and that's what I was meant to do. But meanwhile, this rage was ravaging other parts of her life, and her mood swings were getting worse. I mean, I think life on the road and also the, yeah, the demands of being that spokesperson for a people, I don't want to say it was too much for her because clearly it wasn't. And she yeah. survived. And there were so many of artists of her generation who died young. Yeah. You know, and I've had yeah. people say to me when I said I made a film about Nina Simone who don't know, they, you know, they know that she lived to 70 years old. Yeah. So she did survive. But it took a huge toll. And, you know, we all know that mental illness is also environmentally instigated. It's not just biochemistry. Mm-hmm. All these things play together. And the extreme stressors of the movement, um, you know, those th- those are things that would could bring out um, vulnerabilities in anyone. Mm-hmm. I'll say Malcolm X's oldest daughter said, you know, everyone paid a price for their involvement in that movement. It took a toll on all of us. For them, you know, they lost their father. That was the ultimate price. But for Nina Simone, it was sanity. It was family. It was the commercial side of her career. She paid a huge price. And you tell that story at greater length in this documentary, What Happened, Miss Simone. Liz Garbus, thanks for coming by and chatting with us. Thank you for having me. Say love me, leave me, let me be lonely. You won't believe me, but I love you only. I'd rather be lonely than happy with somebody else. Liz Garbus, her new documentary is called What Happened, Miss Simone, and it's out on Netflix now. All right, and that concludes this encore broadcast of the Dinner Party Download, folks. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Speaking of which, if you go online you will find our annual all-food show featuring all-star chefs Eddie Huang and Gabrielle Hamilton plus a brief history of the toothpick. An invention we're all thankful for. Jackson Musker produces our show. We're thankful for him as well as Nina Potok. She is our associate producer and Christina Lopez who is our associate digital producer. Jeff Peters engineered. Our executive producer is Larissa Anderson. If you haven't yet, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and while you're at it, write us a nice review, would you? It really helps us out. Thank you for listening. Bon appétit.